0: All right, friends, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those and turn with me to the book of Ezra, the book of uh, Ezra. As we were singing that song, um, I I can just personally testify that I know uh, that to be true uh, from my own personal uh, walk with Jesus. Sometimes I I struggle to follow Jesus. Anybody with me (laughs) Uh, this morning? And that even when darkness uh, seems to hide the face of God. Um, there is a grace that you can rest on. Even when everything around you is screaming, He does not exist and He's not real. Uh, he really is a rock uh, that never moves. And one of my favorite uh, quotes, I'll butcher it because uh, I always do, uh, but your resolve to let go of God is not great enough if He is resolved to hold you. So if you we move, we are doubting and we're faithless but he remains faithful he cannot deny himself and he is a firm foundation regardless of what happens uh, around it. if you've never experienced him to be that uh, i pray that uh, this morning might even be uh, a a, a beginning of that journey uh, of taking your doubts and your frustrations and your and your longings to god because here's um here's where we're going to set up from in the word of god this morning um it speaks to us right where we are. So I have questions for us. Do you feel forgotten and abandoned? Have you ever felt that way? Well, what we're going to see today unfold is that God is faithful. You may look around and say, God, where are you? Have you forgotten your, your, your kid? Like, wh- where are you? And we're going to see God reveal himself through his word to be faithful. Do you ever feel that you are broken beyond repair? look at your life and you say I just I'm not what I want to be I'm trying to fight sin and I just feel like I'm broken and there's no hope to ever be repaired from my brokenness and what we're going to see that God reveals himself to us in that brokenness is that God is a God who restores he takes broken pieces and he puts them back together again do you ever feel like you're just lifeless with no joy you can't really say with confidence what Melanie just prayed, that verse, where in the presence of God there is a fullness of joy. And you say, Derek, I I try to put myself in the presence of God, and I've never really felt any fullness of joy. And what we're going to see today is that, if that's true of us, that God reveals himself as a God who will revive you. As we saw in Ezekiel a couple weeks ago, that it's only God who can take these old, dry, dusty bones of our life and breathe life. Into who we are. That is our God. He's the God uh, of, of revival, of life. That is who he is. Have you known him to be that? Or is God just a set of beliefs for you? Is it just a bunch of theology? I'm all for theology. I love theology, but theology is only good to the point that it points us to the person of who God is and that we see who He is, the theology comes alive. It it moves from our head down into our hearts, and so we need to see who God is. And as we looked at last week, as we're walking through the story this year, is that even if we feel prideful and arrogant, You say, Derek, none of those things you just said are true of me when it comes to God because I don't need God. I'm doing just fine on my own. What we see that God reveals himself is that he is a holy God and he's jealous for our worship and he's a God who will humble us under his mighty hand. We looked at Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar last week. Pastor Daniel walked us through that and what it means that he will low down the pride in our lives. But he gives grace to the humble. That's who our God is. He reveals himself. Um, to be true of these things. So as we continue our story, if you're a guest with us, uh, we've been walking through the Bible chronologically since uh, January. So we'll, this will span all the, throughout the end of this year. And so we're just reading the Bible in our own times with Jesus, and then we're just jumping in from a portion of that on here on Sunday. So we'll preach from where we have been uh, reading. And so here's, let me just catch us up on where we are, okay? So because of God's people's rebellion against Him, He in His judgment used foreign countries to cart them away into captivity and so God's promised covenant people have been living in exile in Babylon for over 70 years for over 70 years they are living in enemy territory as slaves and then there's a turn of events God in his providence um, sends uh, the Persians to come in and take Babylon so Babylon is no longer the superpower of that day it's now the Persians and so you see this guy by the name of King Cyrus that's ruling and reigning uh, over the slave people of Israel, over the former Babylonians, and they are the new superpower of the day. And what we're going to see is that God is at work, even in human history. And so if you are here and you're a skeptic, like I was for so many years of my life, and don't really believe that this is from God, like King Cyrus like really existed. He's a historical king that we can point to with evidence. So this Bible is not rooted in fairy tales, it's written as a history book that God has bombarded and in speaking into real human history. And so he, he's going to move King Cyrus to give a decree that all of God's people can go back to the promised land. We're going to read that here in a second in Ezra chapter uh, 1, but it's around 538 BC, so uh, roughly 500 years before Jesus is going to come onto the scene. And, and, and listen, he's going to say some of you can go back to the promised land. So I want you to picture this. This is a wicked king that God's moving in his heart that we're about to see. And he says, you all can go back to restore the promised land. So an enemy king saying, pretty much, you can go rebuild a kingdom that's going to be against me. Like this doesn't just happen. And God is doing this. And, and three million people entered the promised land. When we looked at the Exodus back in the book of Exodus. But now only approximately 50,000 Israelites return. So a far cry from the three million. But God has a remnant of his people. He's taking them back to the promised land. All this is important to set up where uh, we're going. So then 20 years passes. So the year's around 518 B.C. And we read last week um, Zechariah and Haggai. We read those two prophets. And those are two obscure prophets that I think so many of us don't really know where they fit in the story. And he raises up Haggai and Zechariah. And he pretty much has, is in, giving them an indictment. Because they have been in the promised land, listen, for 20 years. And what they've done is they've built houses for themselves, but they've neglected the rebuilding of the temple. So you remember the temple was destroyed when the Babylonians kind of came in and wiped them out? Jerusalem was laid in waste, on fire. They destroyed the temple, and now they're back, and they've lived two decades. And they started on the temple, but then got distracted, and they walked away and started making a life for themselves. So here's a principle that we've got to, wrestle with is is that true of us that there's a priority of the God-centered worship among his people and yet they neglected that for the building of their own lives and their own comfort you say well what's the big deal about the temple Derek well just real quick let me remind us that the prominence of the temple among God's people the temple was a picture of God's presence with his people The temple was the place that God's glory was said to have dwelt in a way that it did not dwell in other places. So listen, if they were going to neglect the building of the temple, here's what they're saying. I'm okay to live in isolation from God. It's not just about the rebuilding of the brick and mortar of the building itself, but what the building symbolized as their relationship to God. They were content to live in isolation from God. So their neglect of the building of the temple was pretty much them saying, we're okay without the manifest presence of God among us. And then the temple was a picture of promises from God. That the temple was the place that offerings were made up for atonement for their sins. That you cannot have access as a sinner to a holy God unless an innocent substitute dies in your place. And that was the place of the temple. And so for them to say, we're not going to rebuild the temple, What they're saying, in essence, is, God, we're okay to live in our sin. We're okay to continue walking in the way we've been walking. We don't need atonement, and we don't want to walk in the promises that you've made to forgive us of our sins if we'll walk in the way that you've told us to. So we're rebelling against Him. And then lastly, the temple was a picture of God's purpose. The temple was a picture of the glory of God on display. We've been talking about the glory of God, right, when we were in Ezekiel. The glory of God is all that God is visible. And so for them to not rebuild the temple, that said something to all of the surrounding nations that would look in, and it said something false about who God was. They would look and see the temple in shambles, and it did not display the beauty and the excellencies of the one true God. The glory of God is at stake here. that They're attempting to rob God of his glory, And so, listen, God is not just cranky because they're not building a building. He's setting up these prophets to say, repent, that this is prominent. God-centered worship at the heart of a civilization is the first importance. And you're living your life and doing all kinds of really good things, but you've missed the main thing in the center of it all. And so Haggai and Zechariah 5.18 are speaking against that apathy to say, restore the temple restore the temple and so then it's where we pick up with Ezra okay Ezra and Nehemiah we're going to look predominantly in Nehemiah this morning uh, but in the original language when we first got God's word uh, transcribed these two books were written together Uh, and it spans about a hundred years of history and Ezra is going to be going to come in to restore the temple we're going to see that uh, here in a second here's the major theme of Ezra and Nehemiah as we see it unfold in the story. You ready? Here's what it is. That God is a faithful God. Who renews the covenant with his people. That I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. See they've been in captivity. But now he's renewing that covenant. And here's how he's going to do that. By restoring God-centered worship through the temple. And by restoring a God-given identity through the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. So again. So again. God is a God who renews, he's a God who restores, and he is a God who rebuilds. And we're going to see this unfold um, together. So let's read Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't have a copy of God's word, there's one underneath your seat. And we would love for you to take that home with you. That's our gift um, to you. But I want us to see uh, this story unfold a little bit from God's word, not just from uh, my mouth. So Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So what is that? That one day, even though that you're in captivity, you will be restored. Jeremiah prophesied that. And so now, listen, what we're about to see is God's going to move history to fulfill that prophecy. It's amazing. Let's keep reading. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord did that. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, And also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, the southern kingdom. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And so that they can rebuild the house of the Lord. The God of Israel, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone, notice, whose spirit God stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. God's at work here, moving all of this. Verse 6. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and with gold and with goods, with beasts and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of God. Let's stop reading right there. So here's what's happening. I can't spend too much time here because we have a lot we're trying to cover this morning. But what we're seeing is. This faithful God who says, I'm going to keep my promise. I said you would be restored, and so I'm going to move history because I'm sovereign over all things. And he's going to stir within the heart of a wicked king to, say, to, to put on his heart, I'm going to let these people go back home. Like we've said, that does not just happen. And then he's going to stir in the people's heart to say, we have a burden for this. And yes, 50,000 of us, we're going to go and we're going to rebuild what has been torn down we're going to restore god's purposes for our lives and he even sovereignly ordains the details that this wicked king is going to pay for their trip he's going to give them gold and aid and everything that they need he's going to just provide that for them like that does not just happen and even to the to the very end of this we saw at the end uh, in verse 7 that he's even going to go back to, the, to where Nebuchadnezzar had ripped away all of this furniture from the temple in the captivity. And he's going to give them back the temple furniture. He said, that doesn't mean anything to me. But the temple furniture was, was absolutely necessary to rebuild the temple. If you don't have the temple furniture, there is no restoration of worship. And that this is God at work to say, I'm even going to give a very costly thing. I'm going to put it in the heart of the king to just give that back to you. This is the sovereignty and the providence of God. That listen, he oversees and he's moving in every single detail. And he cares about every detail of our lives to accomplish his glorious purposes. Even down to cups and bowls that go into the temple. Every detail, he cares. And if you remember, we read this week uh, the book of Esther. Esther is such a remarkable picture of this example. Esther happens uh, around this time frame in Babylon. And it's this picture, and I can't preach Esther. I wish we, could, we had time for that this morning. But basically, God raises up this Jewish woman to be um, queen over this wicked ruling kingdom. And she says, I, I, and she is used by God to restore um, the people of God to being completely wiped out in a genocide, pretty much. God uses her to do that. And there's this, there's this phrase, I think in chapter 2 or chapter 3, she says, God put me in this position for such a time as this it was Mordecai that said that to her. And she said, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to be used of God in this. And so what we see is a picture in the book of Esther. The name of God is not even mentioned in the book of Esther. But we see him, his fingerprints on every single page. The providence of God moving history to put Esther as a queen over a wicked land just so that he can restore his people so that they're not wiped out, so that he can be faithful to restore them. Do you see that? It's the providence of God all throughout Scripture that He is working out every detail of your life to accomplish His purpose in you. That God's will for us will be accomplished. And He's doing this uh, in spite of uh, wicked kings, in spite of captivity, in spite of apathetic hearts. He's moving. And so listen, God is sovereign over the end. We know that. But God is also sovereign over the means. He's using all things for your joy. You see that? He's moving history. So listen, the point that you're in, in your life right now, you say, Derek, my story, and we all have a story. None of it is by accident. That, that's the principle we'll pull out from this. Whatever's happened to you, whatever didn't happen to you, that you think should have happened to you, all, everything that makes up who you are is not by accident. God is taking all of these things. He says, I am going... To use all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and everything in between. And I'm going to move it so that I can accomplish my purpose through you for your joy and my glory. That's, that's a beautiful rest uh, in that. And, so if, and I know, the sovereignty of God, it's, it's a lot of tension for us. right? Like, How does that work? sovereignty of God and my choices and all of that is definitely true. Both are true. But the sovereignty of God does not have to be a stumbling block for us. It is a sweet, sweet pillow on which you can lay your head and rest. He's working in your life, even if it doesn't seem to be. So he's moving his people to be back to this land. And we're going to see some more reasons as to why. So Ezra is used here to rebuild the temple. and so about uh, after just a couple years, around 516 or so, the temple is rebuilt. And so they've had restoration of worship in the heart of, their peop- of the people. But now we get introduced to this man named Nehemiah. And remember, the books are together in the original. So it's kind of one story. So Ezra is rebuilding the temple, but Nehemiah comes in as a governor, and he's going to be used to rebuild the wall around the city. You say, well, a wall doesn't mean anything to me. You know, like, we don't have walls around Johnson City. Why is that such a big deal? But in those days, that was kind of the military, if you will, that was the protection. So if the walls were down, The temple's in the middle, and they're worshiping God, but they have no protection from the enemy territory coming in to take them captive again. So physically and morally, there's no protection against uh, the enemy. They're vulnerable to attack. And so here's um, what we're going to do for the rest of our time together. I'm going to take some themes out of Nehemiah. So you know me, usually I'm going to go verse by verse and kind of just do some exposition uh, through the text. But what I'm going to do now is just kind of pull out some themes that we see in the book of Nehemiah and how they apply uh, to our lives. I've got three of them, okay, so we won't be here too terribly long, uh, I promise. And so, so we're going to pick up with the uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Nehemiah chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 2. And so we've got to get this. Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king of Persia. So he's still in enemy territory some of the exiles have went back to Jerusalem to rebuild, but Nehemiah is still living uh, in the capital city called Susa in Persia, and he's kind of the cupbearer to the king. He has a pretty sweet gig, but it's a dangerous gig, uh, but let's understand when he hears the word back about what Jerusalem looks like, we're going to see his response in chapter 1, verse 2. So read with me. So he hears word back, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So they're... So they're now back into Persia. They've been to Jerusalem and they've seen the situation. So he asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and it's in great shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Notice his response. He hears that it's Just in shambles still. It's not the way it should be. And his response in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, we're going to keep moving to look at this prayer, but let me just ask ourselves this question as we work through this together. When is the last time you with eyes from the Holy Spirit of God bringing these two Uh, your knowledge you see the brokenness of your own heart you see the brokenness of people around you you see the brokenness of our city you look around and you see not just even the spiritual lostness of our culture in this area you say we're not really spiritually lost there's church on every corner everybody talked to says they're a christian and we're saying it's even spiritual lostness even in the midst of religion we does your heart break for that and not even just the spiritual losses, but even some of the physical losses as a result of the brokenness and our rebellion against God. We look around and we see um, marriages that just are in shambles. And we look around and we see the, 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 the fatherlessness of our generation. And we see the lack of education We, we we're in our city and we see all of the hurt that's here. And we're saying, this is not the way it should be. We look around and see the city is broken down. And does our hearts break? And when's the last time that you just looking around with the eyes of Jesus and with the compassion of your Savior and says, I just weep over our sin. I weep over the effects of our sin in our culture. I hate the fact of our country being divided and the, the fear of terrorism and all this stuff, the racism that still exists in our culture. And I see all of it, and my heart just breaks. When's the last time that that was not just something you would shake your head to, but that you actually felt it in your soul? And you're like, God, like, don't don't let us stay here. Will you move? I'm going to mourn. I'm going to fast. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I don't want to stay here. I want to see you renew this place. I want to see us, our families renewed. I want to see our churches restored. I want to see our city restore, when's the last time that you were broken hearted over the condition of the people around you? And I've, I've used this, um, I've asked this question to you before, I've stolen it from s- several pastors I've heard ask it, but I want to ask it to do this again. Are you broken hearted? Are you praying? But if God were to have answered every prayer that you prayed over this last week, assuming that we are even praying, <laughs> and says, he answered it all in the affirmative. So he said, yes. Everything you ask, how many people would be in the kingdom this morning? Like, how many lives would have been transformed as a direct result of your prayer? (laughs) Like, how much restoration would have happened in our community as a direct answer of your prayers if God just were to say, okay, I'm going to say everything yes to everything you've ever asked me this week? And so, what that's an indictment against me is that my prayers, number one, are so... (laughs) um, non-existent in many ways. I, don't, I, I struggle to really pray like this. And when I really look at my prayer life, I have to ask myself the question, if, am I asking for so much just to build my kingdom or to make my life comfortable? Or am I really just begging God to do a work in us and then through us all around us? Like, Is that true? Are you desperately praying? You say, Derek, I'm frustrated at this church. Can I say, I'm frustrated at the church sometimes too? I'm frustrated at my job. I'm frustrated with my marriage. And so I ask, how much are you praying? Because I'm telling you, it, it, it will absolutely transform your heart when, I'm, when me and my wife aren't quite seeing eye to eye. So don't look at me like that. I know you guys don't see eye to eye sometimes. Like My, my posture toward her absolutely changes when I'm begging God to move in me Seeking the joy of my wife and to guard my marriage, like God changes something when I'm praying. He changes us. so is that true uh, of you? Are you praying for God to move? So let's notice how He prays. So verse five, here's the first thing we see. He acknowledged God to be good. Lo- listen, even when circumstances are bad. So he's in enemy territory. He hears the brokenness, but here's what he does. Here's the first thing out of his mouth, verse five. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. So see, he's just praising God. The first thing out of his lips is not a complaint. It's not even a request. It is adoration and worship of God. God, I see the brokenness, but I'm gonna say something that's true about who you are, regardless of what is around me worshiping god that's and this is a really good model for prayer you don't know kind of what to say or what to do when you're praying man this is a way to do this so he starts with just adoration and worship but let's keep reading verse six he not only did that but he admitted the rebellion was the cause of the problem instead of making excuses notice what he says he turns the the blame inward and he says let your ear be attentive and your eyes open To hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Notice, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. They have rebelled. And notice he turns and says, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So he's not just asking for God to do something before he says, God, I'm not blaming you for all of this. I acknowledge that all of this, that we see all this brokenness is not your fault. It is all directly on us. We have rebelled against you, and now that rebellion has affected everything. And we're going to confess. Confession, we say this all the time, it literally means to agree with God. It doesn't mean just to list your sin. It means that I agree with him. My sin really is as bad as he says it is and so lord we repent we say god we have done this but then he moves on and he i love this he rooted his request of god verse 8 through 10 in view of promises from god let's read it together so he says after he's confessed their sin notice what he says remember the word that you have commanded your servant moses If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, notice, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So we just sang it together. The rock you, God, will not move. And your word is strong. What you promise, you will do. And so I love this. If you ever want to pray according to the will of God, pray according to the word of God. You say, I don't know if my prayers are like self-centered. I don't know if I'm praying the right things. I don't know if I'm praying the will of the Father. If you want to be really truly praying in a way that glorifies God, say, God, I'm going to pray your word. I'm going to claim specific promises. That you have given me in your word. And I'm going to pray them back to you. So Nehemiah is not saying that God's forgotten what he says. He knows that God is omniscient and he does not forget. That's not what he's doing here. What he's doing is saying, God, I'm not coming to you to make these bold requests for my sake. I'm coming because you've already said that you would do it. And so I'm, it's an act of worship say, God, you said you're faithful and you said this. So I'm claiming that for my life, for these people. And that is when your prayer life will absolutely turn upside down. I challenge you to do that. There's not one way to pray. Prayer is just a conversation between you and God. But prayer is this. Prayer is continuing the conversation that God has started in His Word. That God is speaking to us. And there's something so powerful that when you take His words and you turn those into prayers back to Him, it really does become a conversation with Him. Like How, how weird would that be if you're trying to have a conversation with me and you just ignore everything that I say, and you just say whatever you want to me. Like, that's not a conversation. That's, that's a one-way thing. Some people really like that, aren't they? they? don't listen at all, and they just say whatever's on their mind. And so many times, that's what we do in our prayers to God, is we just come with this laundry list of things that we think He should do, and we're not listening to what He is saying back to us through His Word. Prayers are continuing the conversation that God has started, so pray the Word of God back to God. It's a beautiful way uh, what I believe God's designed for a relationship with him. And then lastly, we see about his prayer, that he made a specific request with a specific purpose. So he's going to now, after he's praised God, after he's confessed his sin, after he's remembered the promises of God, now he's going to ask for what he needs in verse 11. It says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight, notice, to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of of uh, this man, real quick. When we are doing that, you get this: when we start with worship of God, remember Jesus says the disciples ask him, "Lord, teach us to pray." What do he say? Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins. So when we begin with worship, like he's doing here and we recenter our focus of what's true of God, regardless of what our hearts are telling us, and then we move to say, Lord, I'm confessing that I'm not enjoying you, I'm rebelling against you, and we confess that, and we claim specific promises of God, then we're ready to start to ask God for things. Because then what happens is, your request is going to become what his request was. Lord, I'm asking for this specific thing. Give me success. Make this happen. But he roots it in, that to, for the people who delight to fear your name. And in verse 9, he said again, that to make, he's wanting to see the city restored. Why? To make your name dwell there. His prayer was rooted in something bigger than, Lord, give me what I want. And it was rooted in, God, I want to see your glory on display. And that, is when, but you'll never get him there. Your heart's never changed to really know what to even ask for until our heart's been shaped through this this process of worship and repentance. So are we praying? And uh, I've got more to say, but I really feel like I need to camp uh, here a little bit more. I've already done that. I'm going to move on. But let me just um, let me say this. If we're not praying, I don't want you to feel guilt and shame that you're not Doing this. That's the tendency what we do in church, right? We start feeling guilty that we're not doing enough. And here's the thing: if we're not praying like this, if we're not moved and burdened like this, it's because we're not desperate enough. We just haven't got to the point where we know, like, God, we need you to move like I don't want to just exist like I I want to see you work in this church I want to see you work in my life and I'm not just going to try to merely survive my life I'm going to just get such a broken hearted from what you have said in your word and I'm not going to leave until you do it praying I've heard it said before where there's no hunger for food there's no pleasure in eating let that land a little bit when you get really really hungry for food man when you bite into that burrito glory glory right and you bite into that burrito it's coming up I'm about done so we will we'll get to eat here soon so my goal is to preach long enough to where you're really hungry to where you really enjoy your life that's what I'm doing um, but there's a difference when eh, I can take it or leave it you know I don't really need I'm not hungry but man you wait a little bit longer like, all right, that burrito's looking a little better, you know what I'm saying? And then you you wait a little longer, and it's like, man, I I can't, I I can't, I'm salivating looking at this burrito. And then you wait long enough, and it's like, if I don't eat, I don't even care if it's a burrito, I'm going to die. The hunger is directly related to your enjoyment and your need and your urgency of that thing. So listen, there's no hunger for God desperation, like God we want to see you move. When there's no hunger for him, there will be no pleasure in walking with him. Prayer will always be a checklist until you get hungry. And so I'm praying, Lord, do whatever it takes. And for Nehemiah, it was 70 years of captivity. I don't know if anybody's signing up for that. But God is, is loving enough to do whatever it takes to get us to this place. Where we're brokenhearted, we're burdened, and where we are desperate for him. Lord, let it be so. Real quick, uh, we won't spend too much time here. Here's the second point. So the first one was, we said that Nehemiah's burden led him to desperate prayer. He Saw the the need, and it led him to prayer. Listen, here's the second one. Nehemiah's faith led him to radical obedience. That it was not just enough to say, God, I'm asking for this. And I'm going to wait (laughs) for you to answer. How many times have we done that? Lord, I'm just praying. I don't think anybody's here. His name's JoJo. So I'm going to use JoJo as my example here. I'm not thinking of any particular person with JoJo here, okay? But Lord, I'm praying for JoJo today that somebody would encourage JoJo. Like, Lord, send somebody to JoJo today to encourage them. And I believe God sometimes is going, get up and call her. Like, you're asking, Lord, send someone to encourage that person. Okay, I will. Get up and go. Or, God, save somebody. I've got my three names. I'm praying desperately. And we should. We're desperate. But that prayer has to move us to action. Maybe there's maybe the way God wants to take our prayers that we're praying and say, Share the gospel. Because yes, I'm sovereign over their salvation, but I'm also sovereign over the means. And I have determined that I will save people by God's people being obedient to speak the gospel and call for a response. That is how I do my work. So get up as you are praying. Don't quit praying. The Bible says pray without ceasing. Have this posture of dependence, but then obey. Let your faith in God to pray to him compel us outward to do works. That's what James says. Faith without works is what? Dead. You can believe God all day asking Him for things, but will you let that faith motivate the way you live? Faith without works is dead. So we see Nehemiah doing this. Uh, if you're taking notes, just write these down. I do not have time to read uh, these scriptures over us, but uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 3 through 6, he goes before this wicked king and he asks, Lord, he asks the king, says, King, I kind of want to go to this place and rebuild this city that eventually is probably going to be your enemy. Can I? And the Bible says that, he, that the king said, yes, how long are you going to be gone and what do you need? And it says in verse 8, I love it, the king answered his request because the good hand of my God was upon me. God moving, working. So he, he asked for help. He, he's going to say, I'm gonna, I prayed this, God send me, God do something, but then I'm going to go to the most powerful man of this day that could kill me for this request, and I'm going to ask. And God moves. Then he takes initiative, uh, verse, chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. Basically what he does is he um, goes, he doesn't tell anybody his plan to rebuild the wall. And he just takes a couple guys with him and he walks around the wall and inspects what's happening there. How bad is the need really? So here's the principle. Sometimes we're praying, we're asking God, we're believing God. And I believe what Nehemiah's doing. He doesn't just rush, trying to cast vision. What he does is he says, like, I'm going to wait, I'm going to be patient. And I'm going to inspect. I'm going to count the cost. I'm going to see really what is going on here. So that's a good word for so many of us. not just to run in to what God wants to do for us, but we inspect the wall before we cast um, the vision. And then in chapters, chapter 2, verse 17 through 18, here's what he, I want to read this one to us. Uh, he goes before the people after he's seen the need. He says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble that we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins. So he, know, he knew the specific about that because he'd seen it. <laughs> and he says, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. He's given glory all to God. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, and I pray this is the response of all of us in this church and of the churches in this city, not just our church, but all churches. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And then, chapter 4, verse 6 it says, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people, for the people had a mind to work. They had a mind to work. And then we see in chapter 6 that there's opposition all throughout the book. People are trying to, to shut down what they're doing. And I love Nehemiah's response. He says, I'm doing a good work here, I'm not coming down to you. I love it. He says, why should the work stop so that I can come and listen to what you're saying? I'm not going to listen to opposition. I'm going to shut it out in my life. So again, let me pull out this principle for us. This is so relevant. This happened 2,500 years ago, but it applies to our lives today. What are those distractions that are in your life that's keeping you from this? That you need to speak this verse over, and this happened in history. This is a historical account, but I believe there's a principle here. We look to that, those distractions, we look to that opposition and say, I am doing a great work here. What God wants for my life is better than this relationship. What God wants for my life is better than me getting that promotion. What God has for my life is better than my comfort. And so I'm going to say to all of those distractions, I'm going to say to all the opposition, no, no. I'm doing a great work here. I'm not coming down to you. I'm not letting this work cease so that I can come and um, jump through your hoops. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. So you see that they had this unity together. They were joined together in front of their house. And I love one of the verses that says they had a a, a shovel in one hand and a weapon in the other. So they're building what they needed to build. And they had another hand filled with a weapon to guard off the enemy. And they did so together. 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 In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, we are united together in Jesus to build up the body of Christ to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But we're never going to be built up to be like Jesus if we're not united together, having one mind and one spirit and one goal and one passion. I want to see that happen in our church so desperately that we're so united around the things that ultimately matter, that we're rebuilding, using, seeing God do this work, but we're desperate in prayer, but we're going to get up and say, I'm going to put into practice what God has said. And so many of us go through so long. Look, I'm, I want to prove to you I'm done, okay? I, we can go through life so long going, God, what's your will for my life? I want to see you do something through me, but I, I just feel like you're far away. I don't know what you're doing. And my question to all of us is, are you desperately praying for the Spirit of God to move? Are you trying to do it on your own strength? Don't. <laughs> you can't. I can't. You can't live the Christian life on your own. If that's what you try to do, you don't know Jesus because he transforms you. So, man, stop trying and surrender today. Or, and some of us are going, I God, I don't know what you want from me. And I think where he would say to us is, I know there are a lot of question marks in your life. You know, there's a lot you don't know what to do. But I'm really clear on a lot. So I think 95% of our lives is clear. God's told us. He's given Nehemiah the vision. He knows what needs to happen to rebuild the wall. And that's easy for us. We know 95%. So start with what you do know. Instead of obsessing about all the details of the who and the what and the when and the where and the why, God may not give you that answer before you step out in faith. To believe him, to obey him and everything. trust, rebuild, and and God is faithful to keep his promises. So bow with me. team's going to come up to lead us in a song. Uh, But I want to, uh, as your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, there's nothing magical about these moments. What we do this for is just to remove distractions, okay? Um, So I want us to be able to hear from what God wants to say um, to us. Uh, A point that I didn't get to this morning for the sake of time is that Nehemiah's devotion led him to deep repentance, all of this was rooted in the word of God. Ezra is standing up and reading the word of God to the people of God all day long. And when they hear the word, they repent and they turn and say, God, we have rebelled against you. We have turned aside from you. And God did a work in them because the word of God was right in the center of all of this revival that's happening. Because it wasn't not just enough for the temple to be there, and it was not just enough for the wall to be built. If if it was not ultimately for the worship of God and a a reality of who he is, all of it was in vain. So the word of God takes um, prominence. But as we begin to lead into a response, all of this points us to Jesus. You say, Derek, how does that happen? Because even though they're in the promised land, they're still kind of really slaves. And Jeremiah had promised, you're going to get a new heart and they still hadn't got this new heart that they were talking about. And even though the temple was rebuilt, it was nothing compared to the vision that Ezekiel had of the glorious temple. And it's because even though God is faithful to move his people back to the promised land, he's using them and, and he ordains the means of them being obedient to accomplish his purposes. Listen, it was all lesser because it was pointing to Jesus. Nehemiah is not the point of the story. Ezra and what happened 2,500 years ago is not the point of the story. All of this is happening to set up Jesus. And this is our last Sunday in the Old Testament because next week we're beginning the New Testament reading. And Jesus is coming on display. And so we do not pray and we're not desperate. But Jesus shows us in his life he was always in obedience to the Father. He was always praying and just in tune with what God had for him. And that Jesus was the one who fully obeyed out of his faith in God. He did what we could not do. None of us have obeyed. And Jesus perfectly lived his life in full surrender to the law. And he did so in your place. And that Jesus died on the cross to take the penalty for your sin and mine. Because he is the word of God that reveals God and our sin. And we confess like Nehemiah and, the peop- and Ezra and the people of Israel. Lord, we have sinned against you. But we look to Jesus and says Jesus has taken our place. And so that is how we are rebuilt. That is how we are renewed. That is how we are restored. All of this, this is just a, a point in the story of God restoring his people. But it climaxes and has its fulfillment in Christ. When he comes and dies our death, bears the wrath of the Father, pays the penalty for your sin, and promises, because he rose again, that he will give you new life. He will forgive you of your sin. You can be justified before God. It means God looks at you and sees Jesus. And he can rebuild you. He makes you new from the inside out. That is what it means to follow Jesus. And that is what we're celebrating as we look in Ezra and Nehemiah. That God's moving all of this, ultimately, just so that Jesus can come on the scene to be our Messiah. And so Jesus came and his message was, Lord, let your kingdom come. All of this, this rule in the reign, experienced now. I am the king, and I am making this kingdom of all of life surrendered to me. That is the purpose of God. And so we say, Lord, we are desperate for you to move. In light of the gospel, Lord, we pray, Lord, would you change us, and would you do something in this church and in this city and in the churches here in this community? Lord, would you send us to the nations? Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done we want to see the proverbial walls of our city rebuilt so lord we ask do this work but do it through us we pray so let's sing uh, this song together this new song let your kingdom come